Thanks be to God. Good morning, Redemption. Well, I guess I don't need to tell you my name. Um, my name is Warren, one of your pastors. So glad to be with you today as we are continuing along in the book of Revelation. So told you guys this before, uh, but September is a big month in the history of my life. A lot of big life events occurred in September. And one of those things I told you guys last time was um, my wife and I, we celebrated our anniversary. And also, yeah, yeah, you can check for that. That's cool. That's good. That's great. I'm pretty stoked about it. Um, so also, in addition to that, it's during the month of September that I celebrate uh, the moment that I moved from New York to here to Arizona. It's been nine years. I can't even believe it's been that long so far. But it's been nine years. Um, thankful that some of you are excited I'm here. Well, <laughs> nine years. And I just remember all that went into, like, that transition. There was so much that needed to be ironed out to make the move work. And one of the things that had to be ironed out is I had to swap cars with my parents. Reason why is I had a 2012 Honda Accord and it was great and I loved it, but it was leased. And so I couldn't take it out of state. And so I ended up uh, giving my uh, Accord to them and I took their 2003 Toyota Camry. And so it was great, very reliable car, got me here safely, no mechanical issues. But I remember after like, I don't know, maybe it was like six months here, I started to give that car the real side eye. I was side eyeing it, not because of the uh, reliability, but you know, being 24, year old, 24 years old at the time, very materialistic, um, trying to get a date in all the wrong ways. Um, I was looking at that car, and I was like, man, th this car is just not doing it for me. It had like this poop green color, uh, it had like stains and stuff on the cloth seats and everything, and I was like, this is not going to work for me. And so I went car shopping. I went uh, car shopping, and I remember getting to the lot and talking to the salesman, and he's like really trying to help me. He's like, all right, tell me about your life. How much do you drive? We'll get you something that's really reliable. And so he's showing me all these different cars, right? He's showing me all these cars. And all that stuff about reliability and dependability, he might as well have just been speaking a different language because I wasn't interested in any of that stuff. I was asking questions more of like, does this car have heated seats? Like we need that in Arizona, right? Heated seats. That's all we need is more heat. I was asking things like, like how quickly does this, does this car go from zero to 60? Can we drive it for a second? Let me just see how the, the wheels turn. I was asking questions about all the features of the car, and I ended up purchasing a car based on those features. And as I was doing that, I was missing like the thing of vital importance when it comes to a car. Right? Like, I don't know, how's the engine? How's the suspension? I'm scraping the barrel. I don't know much about cars. I just assume those are things. All my mechanic friends tell me those are things that are really important. So I'm assuming those are the questions I should have been asking. I was missing the main central point of what you should be concerned about when it comes to buying a car. And I mention that because I feel like as we dive into the book of Revelation, we can have that same approach or a similar approach as me purchasing a car. A lot of us are aware of the features of this book. So we're asking about, okay, what are the dragons thing about? What's that about? What's the horseman stuff about? What's the 666? What are all these things mean? 
And so we ask questions about all the features of the book. We bombard whoever's teaching it with all these questions about what do these things mean? And I believe as we take that approach, we miss the thing of vital importance when it comes to understanding this book. We miss the thing that John gets into before he dives into any of the mysteries of the book. So what do we want to be most concerned about when it comes to Revelation? What do we need to know? What do we need to know that sets the stage for everything else? Question is, who is the God of Revelation? Who is the God of Revelation? Let's explore that today. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word today. God, we pray that as we hear it, as your spirit moves, that you would form us and shape us into your faithful people. God, we're so grateful that we get to hear from your word each week, that we aren't left in this world without direction. And so, God, fill our time now and lead us. In your name, amen. So you can open up your Bibles with me to Revelation 1, and we are going to read. We're going to start off in verses 4. I'm going to read the first part of verse 5, and then we'll also read verse 8. So we'll read all those together. So it says this, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And it says this in verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who is the God of Revelation? First thing that John brings our attention to is he is the God who is in control. He is the God who is in control. So as we was mentioned, as it was mentioned last week, this letter, right, this letter that we're reading, that we are going through over the next year, is one that is written to actual people. It's written to actual people. It's written to the seven churches, as John mentions in his greeting. But you see, John goes deeper. He says, this is not just from my hand, that ultimately this is from, this is a letter from the triune God of the universe. And so he describes the three persons of the Trinity talks about the Father, often referred to in Scripture as Yahweh, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, describing his eternal nature. And then he, he gives us a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits who are before the throne is a picture of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. And then lastly, he brings our attention. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is to proclaim Jesus and have our attention focused on him. So John talks about Jesus. He describes him as God's trustworthy representative, the faithful witness who has overcome death, the one who has the status as the one above all rulers, authorities, and powers everywhere. Then John really brings it home. He reiterates it in verse 8. What does he say? He said, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, using the Greek alphabet there as you see on the screen. And what John is getting at there, what he wants the church to hear is that the God that they worship, the God who is keeping them is the first and he will be the last. 
that there is no God who has existed before him, nor will there be one that comes after him. That he is unmatched in strategy, that he is unmatched in intelligence. He is unsurpassed by any military force or any technological invention. He is the God who has existed before everything and will continue to exist beyond everything. And not only is he the God at the ends of everything, he is the God over everything in between. One who is in control of all of history. Now, you can imagine just how encouraging this would have been if you were hearing it. If you you can place yourself in the shoes of the original hearers of this, many of whom were facing persecution. And so they're receiving this letter, right? And they themselves have embraced faith in Jesus, and now it feels like they have this target on them from the empire. I can't help but think of like um, Will Smith's character in the movie, The Enemy of the State, where it just feels like the full force of government coming after you because you refuse to worship Caesar as Lord. And so you're in that position, right? You're in maybe that place of fear, and then you receive this letter from John, this reminder that tells you that the God that you serve has not abandoned you that he remains with you, that despite what feels like Caesar's endless power, that there is a God who is the ultimate architect of history. It's not Caesar. So you get this reminder that you can confidently entrust yourself to the care and control of God. Now, how much more do we need to hear that today? How much more do we need to hear that we can confidently entrust ourselves to the control and care of God, that we can release our anxieties to him, recognizing that we have anxieties, but ultimately our anxieties are not the Lord over us. There is a God who cares for us. And the God that we serve, the God that we're talking about here in Revelation, his status has not changed. He is still the one ruling today, just as he was yesterday, and just as he will be forever. He is the God who is in control. That even death itself could not hold Jesus down. The tomb was empty. He is the one who is ruling and reigning over all of history. He remains in control. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, this can be a hard thing to grasp. This is a hard reality for me often to live into. I think for me, when I think about it, I can totally get on board with part A. I can totally get on board with like God being the one to start everything. But when it comes to the middle and what the end will be, that's when it becomes a challenge for me. I think sometimes in our lives, the way we can live our lives, right, is like, all right, God, you got everything started. You got everything going. But the present obstacles that I have to face today, it's all on me. It's all on my shoulders. When it comes to my work, when it comes to my relationships, when it comes to whatever the thing is that I'm dealing with, it's all on me now. Yeah, you got things started, but now it's up to me. Or we could even take it to another place. We can go... Oftentimes, as things are happening in our society, as there may be new movements, new things that are happening around us, like, for example, artificial intelligence, right? We'll go like, oh, man, God, what are you going to do? What is this going to do for the church? As if God hasn't promised that the church will continue forever. As, as, As if he hasn't promised his eternal care 
for those who are with him. And so we kind of treat these things as if God is in heaven like the, the scientists in the movies trying to piece everything together like, whoa, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. But the truth of the matter is, is that if we got a glimpse into the throne room of God, he's not panicking in heaven. He is firmly and steady in control. We have to remember about the God we serve is this, is that changing circumstances do not shake his stability. Changing circumstances do not shake his stability. And so what do we do when we're feeling that crunch very often? Right, as we are in it, our perspective shrinks this small, shrinks so narrow. And what we often need to do is just pause and say, God, help me to remember. Help me to rest myself in your control. Help me to rest my heart in the reality that you are in control. And also realize that just because things are not going the way that we planned them doesn't mean that God is not in control. Just because things aren't going our way. Right? Oftentimes, when it comes to our lives, we're in a rush to get healthy everywhere in the way that we view it. And God's desire is for us to become holy. And so the pursuit of things may look different than what we had planned. But we, we have to be willing to go, God, I've made my plans, but I'm going to hold them like this, surrendering them to your timeline, surrendering them to ultimately your plans, because I trust that you are good and you are leading me better than I ever could for myself. So when we face these obstacles, we remember that the God who has us has us from A through Z. Amen? Who is the God of revelation? He's the one who is in control. You see, the beauty of the God that we serve is this. It's just not that he's like hovering over all creation and is far and distant from us. No, the God that we serve has moved towards us. He has moved towards us in love, which John picks up as we finish or we see the, the second part of verse five there. It says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So John goes like this. He says, the God who of revelation is not just the one who is in control. He's also the one who has rescued us, rescued us, he rescues. And so the church received this, receives this reminder of what Christ has done for us, what he has done for all of us who are in him. We see that what God has done, he has moved in a tremendous act of love towards us. Starts from his love, that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. While we were enemies of him, Jesus came to earth and put on flesh and lived a perfect and, and sinless life, right? And ultimately went to the cross and received the condemnation that we deserve so that we can actually be freed from the power of sin and Satan and death and ultimately live an eternal relationship with God. And so the church receives this reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And they receive this because there's a call to the churches in Revelation to remain faithful, remain faithful. Remember that sin ultimately does not have the final word over you. Again, as we're thinking about them and their situation, they're receiving this letter. And as they receive it, all around them they look. All around them they look, and all they can see is just the rampant idolatry happening all around them. Not that we don't have it in our day, but it was a, a bit different because a little, it was a little more in your face then. Temples and statues and 
all, uh, you know, whole places dedicated to worshiping these gods. And so you can imagine as they're living like that, as they're experiencing that, they must have been wondering, well, we're just this small crew. We're just this small group. How can we actually overcome all this sin that's happening all around us? Is it even possible? John goes, it won't be by, your, by the courage you can drum up in yourself. It won't be because uh, you've got the right strategy in approaching it. It's because of the blood of Jesus who has already rescued you. It allows you to overcome. You know, one of the events in September that still sticks really vividly in my mind is the event of September 11th, right? And having experienced it, I think I've told you guys about that before, but like just having experienced it firsthand, it's each year as it comes up, right? It brings up a lot of memories. And what I do is probably what I should never do is like I go down the YouTube rabbit hole, you know, and I watch all the videos and documentaries and interviews and so on and so forth. And something that you just see highlighted time after time in those documentaries, time after time in the stories is the first responders, the first responders who rushed in as those towers were burning, going there to rescue people even at the expense of their own lives. Running towards, while everyone was running the opposite direction, they ran towards those who were suffering and gave their lives to rescue many. So even as we think about that, think about that that gives us some insight into how much more Jesus has done for us. How much more he's done in his love as he faced the agony of the cross, as he confronted death head on, as he battled the forces of evil and sin and Satan to rescue us from the clutches of death, from the clutches of sin. So it's something we need to remember. It's something that we have to tell ourselves over and over and over again. Because when it comes to sin, Right. A lot of us, or we can feel like just a, 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 power, a sense of powerlessness when it comes to fighting sin. Right? What God has done in rescuing us is that he has freed us from the power and penalty of sin. He has freed us from the grip and consequences of sin. And as I mentioned that, I think it's one of those two-part things, again, that we can easily accept one part and really struggle with the other. I think we can easily accept the reality that, all right, we're, we've come to the knowledge of Christ, we've come to faith, and okay, we won't go to hell. Right? God has saved us from that. But when it comes to the grip of sin in our lives, that's where we struggle. That's often where we struggle. The reality, coming to the reality that the power of sin has been broken in your life right now, right now, not just in some future day, right now. And so what we were saying, what we're thinking there essentially is like, let's say, you struggle with anger. What God's rescue plan would be if there is no power for now would be like, all right, I'm not gonna send you to hell because you have a short fuse, right? But when it comes to the anger that your classmates or your spouse or roommates or whatever have to experience, there's no power for that. Good luck with that. And good luck to them too. (laughs) Because it's just my sinful nature. There's nothing I could do about it. You just gotta accept it. One day it'll be gone. Is that the rescue that God offers? No. The rescue that he offers is not just to wipe away the eternal consequences of sin. It's to smash the grip and hole that sin has on your life right now. Right now. 
And I think as we often approach the topic of sin, as we think about it, we can often just think about it individualistically. But here's the thing, when it comes to us wanting to overcome sin, when it comes to us wanting to recognize the grace that we just sang about that empowers us to live for God, we recognize that we don't just do it individually, you do it because we're a part of a community. We are part of a faithful community, a community that's been put together to represent the God of the universe. So your overcoming sin is not just for your own sake, it's, for your, it's a part of your responsibility to your brothers and sisters who are, we as, to, uh, as a family together, are seeking out to represent the God of the universe. And so we don't succumb to sin. Sin should never just be a routine part of our lives, something we go, okay, well, I guess that's just the diet of being a human being. No, no. He has sent his Holy Spirit that empowers us to live for him. One of the enemy's biggest deceptions is making us believe that sin is our true reality and life with God is an illusion. We have the power to overcome because we have ultimately been rescued by the blood of Jesus. Who is the God of revelation? He is the one who has rescued us. Now, the beautiful thing about his rescue plan is this. He just doesn't rescue us and then sit us on the sidelines. No, he actually calls us into a new life with him. What does John say? It's the new life that we have been called to in him. He says in verse 6, he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him, oh, just let me stop there, actually. <laughs> priests to his God and Father. So next thing that we see that the God of Revelation, who he is, what he's done for us, is that he has given us a name. He has given us a name. And so John makes this point, right, that not only have we been rescued by the blood, we have been marked by the blood of Jesus for a mission. And as the original hearers would hear this, right, their minds are, would go to the book of Exodus, right, as they hear the progression of being rescued by the blood and then called into a mission, their minds would go to the story of the Exodus, right, as the people of Israel were saved by the blood of the lamb. And ultimately, as they were rescued from, that, uh, from, from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and uh, the, the, the hand of Pharaoh, that as God did that, right, he brought them out of Egypt, he just didn't go, okay, good luck now, guys. I saved you. You'll figure it out from here. No. Right, what does it say in Exodus 19? It says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Should be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The thing is, is that in light of the cross, this name and identity for the people of God has not changed. Right? Peter picks it up in his second letter, or his first letter, sorry. But you are chosen, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the call, the naming of the people of God, the mission that they've been given, still to represent God as priests. Now, the beautiful thing of the cross is that in, for the Israelites, for the people of God in the Old Testament, right, uh, there were only certain people who were designated as priests. There were only special people who were designated as priests and served as mediators between God and the rest of the people. But the beauty of the cross is that we all have been washed by the blood of Jesus, and we are all giving this name and identity to live out as priests to the glory and honor of God. 
That, that means that we have been given direct access to God. We don't have to go through anyone to talk to God. And the thing is, with this direct access comes a responsibility. That we are to show people how they can experience life with God. Powered by the blood, we can show people what it means to experience life with God. And I think there are many reasons why the churches needed to hear this, right? There were some of them that as, as they were in the midst of persecution, as they were in the midst of just hard times, they had to remember that even if the empire rejected them in every way, that they were a part of an unshakable kingdom. And there were others that needed to be called up. There were others that needed to be reminded of their identity so that they can bring themselves to alignment with it. And I think even as the church today, it's a reminder that we all need. I think oftentimes as we approach church, we can go, okay, well, what I'm doing is just a, it's just a random smattering of individuals from the area who come to a place, and we sing some songs together, and we hear from a preacher who thinks he's funny, but he's not. Um, and then we just go out and do we do our own thing. You see, that's not the vision. That's not what God has intended in bringing us together. See, we have been brought together. Once we were rescued, we are placed into a family. And that family is supposed to come together and serve as an outpost of the kingdom of God. That each week as we come here, we are refreshed and renewed, ultimately to be sent back out to represent God in all the different places where he has us. So the question always is this, right? As we've been given an identity, as we've been given a role, the question is this, are we walking in it? Are we embracing our identity? Have you come to the realization that your involvement in church goes way past, right? It's this and more. It goes way past just attending services or attending events. It's about coming here, being refreshed, renewed, formed by the word and spirit to ultimately discover how God wants to work through you wherever he has you in the classroom, on the basketball court, at the grocery store, at your home, in your neighborhood, wherever it is, God is calling you to shine like a priest, to represent him. And so the call is this, do not fade into the background. Shine like a priest. Don't look to blend in in those spaces. Beautify to the glory and honor of God. God wants to use you and his ultimate plan is restoring all things in our world. And so the prayer there is, God, help me to have an eyes. Help me to have eyes. Maybe there are places that I've just come to view as just a means to an end. God, help me to understand how this place, how this thing that you have me doing can be a means of worship. Give me the vision for it. So who is the God of revelation? He is the God who has given us a name. He has given us an identity. And as we continue on, we'll see this. The last thing we'll look at is this, that the God who is God of revelation, he's the one who's in control. He's the one who has rescued us, right? He's the one who's given us a name. And what we can be confident in is that he is the God who will finish what he started. He will finish what he started. What does John say in verse 7? It says, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John makes the point of this. The last thing we'll look at is this. The God of revelation is the one who is bringing justice and judgment. 
He is the God who is returning with justice and judgment. You might remember Jake, as he closed off the sermon last week, he said these words. He said, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. That there are many ways that we may talk about what revelation means, but this part, we hold this. We hold this in unity, that Jesus is coming back. And what John is alluding to here is that is from Acts 1, right? In the beginning of Acts, there's a scene where Jesus is ascending into heaven, right? And the apostles are just kind of like standing there like this. They're like looking up, like, oh, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And the angel comes and he's like, what are you guys looking up for? Just as he has left, he is coming back. He's coming back likewise. And so go forward in light of that. Go forward in light that Jesus is coming back. And so John hammers that home again. He reiterates it here. And he says that when he comes back, everybody's going to see him. It's going to be an unavoidable public event. There won't be anyone that goes, oh, man, I was watching Netflix and I totally missed it. <laughs> oh, man, I had my headphones up. I was, miss- I, was, I was PRing at the gym. I missed it. <laughs> no. Every eye will see it. It will be an unavoidable public event. But the one who is returning is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, bringing justice to our world, setting all things right. And John also makes this point is that when he returns, everyone will have a reaction. Everyone will have a reaction. He says that there are people from all tribes of the earth that will be mourning in light of Jesus' return. You may ask, why is that the case? Why would they be mourning? Baby Jesus. No, no, he's not baby Jesus right here. He's coming back with justice and judgment to set things right. And they will have to come to grips with the reality Maybe they've lived their lives with him totally out of their mind. They will have to come to the the realization that there is a God of the universe. He is coming to bring justice and judgment to our world, to set everything right. And so why did they need to hear this? They needed to hear this because, as I said, the call of revelation, the call to the churches is this. Be faithful. Be faithful. Don't compromise when it comes to sin. Continue to pursue Jesus. Continue to pursue righteousness. Continue to pursue justice. Don't compromise when it comes because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Live in light of that reality. Live in light of that reality. Pursue faithfulness. He is coming back. He's bringing their attention to reality, bringing their attention to that inevitable day when Jesus returns, right? You know, it's funny, as I was thinking about this, of the inevitable day, right, circling back around to cars, when I purchased that car, I was living with some guys at the time, and another one of my friends purchased the car as well. Right, and so we're both feeling ourselves. We're like, oh, we got new cars. We were both like really broke driving cars. We had no business driving. <laughs> and I remember just talking to him about it. And I was like, yo, how's the car going? How's life going? And he was like, yeah, it's great. But I just, you know, I haven't made one payment on this car. And so I was like, you, you got to make payments on the car, dude. Like, if you don't do that, they're going to like come and take it. And he was like, 
yeah, no, no nothing's going to happen. It's, it's going to be all right. So I was like, all right. So, you know, some time went on as these things happened. And I just remember one morning, I feel like we got a preview of Revelation. <laughs> we got a preview of the wailing. Because he went outside and that car was gone. <laughs> and I remember him even standing there. He was like, Lord, why me? I was like, why me? Why do you think? What do you think? And you know what, he, he was even a little bit upset with us because he was like, hey, I thought I told you guys to like park in a way that if he comes, you could like block me in. I was like, I'm not doing that. Out of your mind? That's crazy. Make the payment. <laughs> this, this, this reality, right? The warning was given day after day. Time after time, and then the day finally came. I uh, asked that person to do that. And so church, we want to be prepared for the return of Jesus, right? As John tells us in his letter, he says that the people who are in Christ don't have to fear judgment, right? But what we want to do is to continue in an abiding relationship with Jesus, continue in an abiding relationship with Jesus, continue to maintain him as the object of our affection, the object of our focus. And what he says is that if we do that, we will be able to meet him in joy upon his return. We'll be able to meet him with confidence upon his return. Now, to talk about the God of justice and judgment, I think I would do a great disservice if I didn't say this, is that I know for some of you in here, you are waiting for that God to show up for some situation in your life. That there's somewhere in your life where you have suffered the devastating impact of sin in your own life. And you're wondering, is anyone going to, like, fight for me? Will this ever be made right? And in that, it may feel like the person or people who inflicted whatever the harm is, that they are just, they have escaped every form of earthly justice and just living their best life. So if that's you today, what I want you to hear is that the God of Revelation is the one who has a plan to set all things right, not just in the big creation, but also for your life, also in your situation. That the truth of the matter is, is that whoever has inflicted the harm, if they remain unrepentant, and for us as a whole, we are going to have to stand face to face with Jesus someday, whether he comes to us or we go to him. And we will have to give an account for our lives. And so if someone, it feels like, has escaped all the grasp of earthly justice, they have not escaped the ultimate authority over our world. And he will set things right. And so if you're feeling that today, my encouragement to you is to place your pain at the feet of Jesus. Recognize the God that we serve. It talks about him in scripture like this. He is the God who draws near to the broken, draws near to the, those who are crushed in spirit. And he's drawing near to you with his comfort. But not just with that, that ultimately he will be the one to avenge you. So you can trust in him. 
As we'll continue on in Revelation, we'll see that there are many who are crying out for their God, for the God of Revelation to come and bring justice. And he says, I will do it. And he will. Now, for others of you today, I think the call is a bit different. The call that Jesus is making you or making to you or calling out to you is to this. The encouragement is this. Turn to him in repentance. Turn to him in repentance. There are some of you today who have just become too comfortable with life on your own terms. You've become too comfortable with that versus an obedience, a life of obedience to Jesus, recognizing that his commands come from his love. And in that, what happens is that you've become, you've just lost your focus on him. You've totally just lost your focus, that your thoughts, your heart, your emotions, your actions are not being lived out in the expectancy of his return. And if we asked you about the future, you would go, well, the future is just some big question mark, right? We'll see what happens. Versus seeing every passing minute, every passing moment, every passing day as a moment leading up to the return of Jesus. Return of him who is coming back to bring justice and judgment. And even if we asked you about it, if we said, okay, do you, do you really want Jesus to come back? You'd probably be like, no, nah, not really. I'm having too much fun right now. I'll worry about that stuff later. I'm just enjoying life too much. I don't want Jesus' return to come back and interrupt my plans. Here's my encouragement to you. To turn back. Recognize that he is coming back. And don't think in the midst of how you're living that you've got unlimited time, right? That Jesus can come back at any moment. And his heart for you is for you to be able to meet him in confidence and joy upon his return. And so my encouragement to you is to shift your attention back to him. Be ready to welcome him in joy. And there are, there are probably places in your life that God has just become a part of your checklist versus being at the center of your life. And so Jesus is calling you to return. Jesus is calling you to make him the focal point of your life. Don't get distracted by all the things in our world. Remember the reality that God is revealing through this book to say that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He will be the thing that sustains you and keeps you. And ultimately, he wants to lavish you with love. But you're turning to all these different places that he's saying, focus on me. Focus on me. Continue to keep me the focal point of your vision. You know, there are some people who, you know, when they think about life with Jesus, they go, man, I want to do it, but it's inconvenient, right? It's just, ah, it's too hard. Whenever I hear that, I I respond and I go, yeah, it is. But the truth of the matter is we can't expect to be conformed from our sinful natures into the image of Christ and just be comfortable the whole time. God loves us far too much to give us the easy way. So he's calling you to turn to him today. Experience forgiveness. Experience the grace that holds you and empowers you to live for him. Experience what can only come from him. That was her, the the words of the greeting that the way it started was this. Grace and peace. That's what he wants. Experience grace and peace. And so church, the God of revelation... As we open up the rest of the book, let's center ourselves in him on who he is, that he is the one who is in control, that he is the one who has rescued us from his love. 
He is the one who gives us an identity, a name to live from instead of one to strive for and protect. That he is the one who is ultimately coming back to set things right. And so our job as the church is to keep our eyes set on him, faithful, as we'll read in Revelation, even unto death. Recognizing that death doesn't have the final word over us. Jesus has the final word on all of history. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, God, that as we think about our lives, think about all the things that we have to experience in life, Lord, the ups, downs, and everything in between, that you are the God who is present with us, that you have promised to never leave nor forsake us. And so, God, we can trust you. We can place our trust in you knowing that, Lord, you will be with us forever. And so, God, I pray today, Lord, that the truths that were proclaimed today, that they wouldn't just live in our minds, but that they would grip our hearts. And God, as we live out each day, help us to remember we live as representatives of you wherever you have us. Help us to remember we've been rescued by the power of your blood. Help us to remember or that you have uh, 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 given us this name and identity and ultimately you are coming back to set all things right. That we are a people in waiting, waiting for you. And so until then, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in light of who you are. In your name we pray, amen. And now we will move into a time of response. And we respond here in four ways. First way is through communion. We remember that the rescue of Jesus, right, the rescue that we have received came by way of the cross. And on the cross, he gave his blood. He gave his body for us so that we can be in an eternal relationship with God, so we don't have to be gripped by sin. Respond in prayer. If something has stirred in your spirit today, come forward. There will be people on both sides who would love to pray with and for you. Next, we respond in giving, right? We have been lavished by the love of God. God has been so generous to us, so we respond in generosity. So if you are feeling led to give, I encourage you to hop on the Redemption Tempe app. You can find a link there to give online, or you can give at the giving, giving boxes in the back. And lastly, we respond in singing. Respond in singing out to the God who is worthy of it all. As we see in Revelation, there is worship just happening to the God who is worthy of all our praise. So I invite you now to respond.